0: Welcome to Larpender Life, the podcast about H.P. St. Paul in the 80s and 90s. I'm your host, Dave Carey.
1: On my fourth hand, I won uh, $26,550 when I hit a straight flush in five cards. That's on a need no basis, and you don't need to know.
0: Well, hi everyone. After a long break, we're back for episode number 21. A lot of you asked me to get Mark Dankers on as a guest, and he finally said yes. And so today, Mark Dankers is in the house. Well, not actually in my house, he's on Zoom, but you get the idea. Anyway. Here's my talk with Mark. Well, hi to everybody. Welcome to another episode of Larpender Life. I'm really happy to be joined today by Mark Dankers. Mark, welcome to Larpender Life. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, tell me about how you first got connected to HP. How did that how did that come about and when was it?
1: Uh, actually, I went to college to be an uh, algebra teacher. My uncle got a hold of me because he was in computer sales at the time. And he says, no, you don't want to be an algebra teacher. He says, you want to you get into computer sales. So it was primarily because of him that I ended up getting my computer science major and my math major and my minor in marketing because of all the classes that he set up for me to, to take. Um, so I basically, after I got done with school, I went down to his office one day in Bloomington, and he was going to help me write my letter of introduction for my interviews. At the end of that day, I finally asked him one question. I said, so Uncle Ray, I says, so if you had to start all over today, uh, which company would you want to work for? He says, well, Hewlett Packard. And I basically looked at him. I says, the calculator company? He goes, oh, no. He says, they're going to be the biggest and the best computer company there's ever going to be. And I go, really? So I guess at that point, I decided, well, if, if he thinks that, uh, I spent five years of my life listening to him, so I better listen to him on this one. So I obviously sent my resume to Hewlett-Packard, and after about three weeks, I never even got a reply back from them uh, in the local office anyway. And the interesting point then was that I found out that one of his SEs that he worked for for five years for my uncle was Dave Martin. And Dave Martin was in the HP office, and one day my uncle called up Dave and, and explained the situation to him, and and Dave was in the office, and he says, "Well, Tom is here today. Let me see if I can get an interview set up for him." So, about an hour later, I got a phone call from Tom Rappel's secretary. He says, "Well, he's got an opening for you at 1130. And I says, "Well, I'm really, you know, not ready to do that today." She goes, "Well, today's your opportunity." And I says, "Well, I, I got to take a shower." She says, "No, you need to get here at eleven So I got there and had an interview. About fifteen minutes in the office, we went over to the it was a steak and ale, I think, at that point. And I had about three margaritas and about eight o'clock that night, he gave me an airplane ticket and said, "Uh, you're going to to Chicago tomorrow morning to interview for a job. So he actually called up the secretary when we were sitting there and had her get an airplane ticket for me before I left that night. Wow. So it was a real fast interview. um, But the three margaritas didn't do me any good uh, because I had an eight o'clock flight the next morning. And I got back, got a phone call that night. And he says, come in tomorrow morning. I'll make you an offer. And it was it was done that quickly, so it was just amazing
0: how fast knowing the right person to help get the interview set up to actually get my job. So, Mark, uh, being a young guy and you know in a sales organization, HB way back when, um, you know, what do you remember about um, about those early days? Bob Sudcamp and Bob Stringer had a little rule that they had back in the days
1: where we couldn't leave a restaurant at night um, until our bar bill was more than our food bill, and how we kept going then that, that at those nights was that we come up with a game that they had used in Chicago called connibbling. So we would cannibal for the bill where everyone would get three coins in their hand and um, you go around the table. So you either keep zero, one, two or three in your hand and you go around the table and you had to pick a number and you couldn't pick the same number as someone else had. So whoever picked the, 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 um, the, whoever picked the number that was right, got to lose a, a penny and it was always interesting because I would say five out of eight times Lamar Lamar Bentner would lose so he got to the point where he says I'm not even going to he says just give me the bill <laughs> so cannibaling went on for many many years until um I think I think it got word to corporate and corporate kind of Stop us
0: on doing that. Anything that has to do with uh, luck or anything, I would not bet against you, Mark. I have been with you many times in Las Vegas when, you know, after the conference or whatever was over, you and I would hit the craps tables or the, you know, the blackjack tables. And, uh, you know, after you got up so much money, I mean, you know, and the, here's the thing. You were telling me about these things um and I kind of didn't believe you that you were you were telling me the truth that oh you won this much of money so I decided to like hang with you and say okay let's really watch and I'll be damned you know you'd you'd sometimes bet on three heart eights in a row or whatever and you'd win and you gave me money a bunch of money and said just stick it in your stick it in your pocket and don't give it back to me until tomorrow <laughs> and and that way you knew you were going to come home with money and you know I saw you do it. Uh, time after time so I, I think i would never probably bet against you in any sort of game of chance and i think those early cannibals probably learned their lesson <laughs> well um the one thing bad about cannibaling
1: and losing is you got to fill out the expense report then and sometimes it's hard to fill out the expense report for a $2000 meal yeah. <laughs> but but it was it was in the culture back then and bob sudcamp and bob stringer knew what was going on so it, the, those expense reports still went through Sure, but yeah, we had a lot of fun out in Vegas on and gambling, and I had a lot of good moments out there, and probably some bad moments too. But um, probably the best moment was one day when I got there on a Sunday afternoon. Um, there was a new game called um, three three five seven poker, and I was watching it. And there was a couple other HP people sitting at the table, so I decided, you know, I'm going to come down and play that game. And about ten or fifteen minutes later, I got into the game, and I think on my fourth hand, I won. Uh, twenty six thousand five hundred fifty dollars when I hit a straight flush in five cards.
0: So, oh my! Uh, so that was that was a that was a that was a fun game. Yeah, well, I guess you mentioned steak and ale earlier, and boy, we spent a lot of time at steak and ale back in those days. But I think I remember um, hearing from you that there was one time at the steak and ale that wasn't such a good memory for you early on before you had a company car, you had your own car there, um, had a little bit of an incident. Well, as it turns out, um, I, I promised everyone the first week
1: at work or the first two weeks of work when I got my first paycheck, I was going to take it over to Steak and Ale and spend the whole thing um, on drinks and let everyone have fun. So uh, I was leaving that afternoon about 2.30 to go over there a little bit early. I walk out of the HP office on, on Prior Avenue, and my, my old 1972 Thunderbird was gone. And I just thought it was a few of my mentors back in those days, some senior sales reps. I thought it was pulling a, a joke on me. So I walked around the office because I figured they just moved my car to the front of the office or, or next door. And I walked around for about 15 minutes. And I couldn't find my car. So I went in and talked to my manager, Tom Rapith, about what was going on. He figured, well, it was certainly someone that was just pulling a prank on me. So he got an intercom and said, "Okay, who's ever got Danker's car? Bring it up front right now. No, you know, and get her up here." And no one ever brought the car up. So guess what? My car was stolen. So so I got a ride home that night, and I was staying at, at that time at my wife now Lori's parents' house in Invergrove Heights. And the only extra vehicle they had for me to get to work the next day was my brother-in-law's one seventy-five Kawasaki dirt bike. Oh my! So I had a I had a meeting that day, so I put on my three-piece suit and tie, and as I was heading into town, I was going across the Lafayette Bridge. And for those of you that have been across, you realize that there's a barrier down the middle of it. And as I was going into into, into town, there on the other side of the road, I saw my Thunderbird on the back of a flatbed wrecker. Tires were off of it and had a all kinds of white stuff all over it. And didn't know where it was going, so I got to the end of the bridge, and took off after the 175 dirt bike, and I went for a few miles and never caught up to it, so I didn't know where it went. Uh, When I got to the office that day, I got a phone call about an hour later from the St. Paul police saying, hey, we found your car. It's at the St. Paul um, um, impound lot uh, if you want to come get it. So now I know where the St. Paul impound lot is, and uh, my car was basically totaled. Oh my,
0: yeah. So not such a not such a great memory, but uh, maybe a lesson learned about car keys. <laughs> well,
1: you don't when you live in a small town. You kind of used to always put your car keys under the floor mat, and I learned a lesson
0: at that point. Never put the keys under the floor mat after that. Yeah. Now you had a really long career in in sales, and you know I know from working with you for many years. There's plenty of uh, difficult things, quotas and things, and pressures about being a salesperson, but. Obviously, you enjoyed that um, that role. It was really well suited for you. You know what were? Can you remember some things that you just really liked about being a sales rep? Well, I guess as you know, I, I certainly enjoyed uh, entertaining customers.
1: Uh, HP was very much into that back in the seventies and early eighties, and even into the nineties. I mean, it was it was very common to take customers out for lunch and dinner and golfing, um, whatever the companies would allow them to do. Uh, so I had a lot of fond memories of entertaining customers over the years. And, uh, obviously a lot of stories go along with those, some of which I can tell (laughs) and some
0: of those, which I cannot. Of course. So obviously you were, you were really successful in that role. Did you, did you ever get to meet, um, Bill or Dave? I actually got to
1: meet Bill twice and, No, actually, I got to meet Bill three times and I got to meet Dave twice. Bill came out to our office in 1979. We were setting up 3M and General Mills as a a major account um, in the major account program. So I was able to take Bill Hillett over to 3M one morning uh, in my car. So I had one-on-one with him for about a half an hour that morning. And it was a real interesting conversation. I'll never forget that. And then I met both Bill and Dave at the President's Club in 1989. It was the only President's Club that both of them had attended themselves because uh, of their busy schedule they only go every other year except that year was in Santa Barbara and it was close enough for them both to attend so I got to meet them there and um, after they give us our awards out I'm looking around and I saw Bill Hewlett sitting there at his table with his wife and Dave Packard and I said that's just not right so I tore my award apart frame and all and took over my award and sat down with Bill Hewlett and I asked him if he wouldn't mind signing it for me and we talked about five minutes and next thing I noticed, there was a line behind me. Uh, other people did the same thing. And then I went over to Dave Packer, did the same thing. So I, I think everyone that night took their award apart and wrecked their frame. And uh, I think I said a tradition, tradition out there
0: where uh, from that year forward, they never framed the, the awards after that. Mark, um, one of the things that's really different these days, I think, in, in a, a way that HP was kind of ahead of its time was when we put our voicemail system in and you could easily not just not just record a voicemail from like a phone that wasn't answered, but you could just pick up and dial into the voicemail system, record a message and send it to somebody else. And they could pick it up at their leisure, just like we do with text messages on cell phones now, but you just did it with voice. And it really became part of the culture. You remember that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was There was a lot of value to that, I think. And then also we, you know, started using that. M- maybe not always for business stuff. There was the occasional uh, outside hours uh, voicemail system. Uh, I imagine that that you can remember those as well. I probably sent a couple of those late night voicemail messages to you. So there's one particular voicemail that that I have. I actually you left it for me, and I saved it, and it's it's been saved. For all these years, I actually recorded it. I have it on my computer. And one of your major customers was General Mills. And um, I know occasionally we've talked about Mike Mines before. His name has come up on this podcast. And I, I know Mike occasionally listens to this. And I hope you're out there, Mike, because you'll appreciate this one. Maybe you'll remember. So, Mark, you were. I'm going to tell a story because I'm not sure you remember it. But um, you were deer hunting. And I got a request from uh, Mike for some quotes and I was working on them. And as we were talking about, I just left you a message on your voicemail system because I couldn't reach you in your deer stand, but I knew eventually you'd pick it up. Well, lo and behold, you responded to me from your deer stand uh, and you were in the middle of recording a message to me about General Mills and something happened. Do you remember what happened? Uh, I do remember what happened. I
1: was. As you said, I was sitting in my deer stand, prime time about nine o'clock in the morning, and lo and behold, a deer comes walking by. So I decided what's more important at that point was to shoot the deer. So I started shooting at the deer, and my gun jammed. And uh, I guess at that point in time, I um, hung up on you.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to, if I can figure out how to play this voicemail uh, right here in the podcast, I will, and I'll include it. But uh, so hopefully I can make that happen so everybody can hear that. Hey, Dave, I'm Mark Dankers. Uh, I say it's about 7.30 uh,
1: here on uh, Wednesday morning. I'm uh, just calling you from my northern view out of my deer stand number three, uh, which is known as my son's deer stand. Uh, but I wanted to get back to you um, quickly based on the couple of voice messages you sent me concerning the configuration of the quotes that you're doing for General Mills and like Mine. You know, you, as you said, you were talking to Angelica about the, the new discounting structure that's going to be put in place here sometime in December to the March time. Frame. I don't know exactly when that's going to happen uh, because of the new type of pricing and discounting structure that we're coming out with, like we did on the A-Series, uh, you know, some time ago. So uh, go ahead and do that. Hold on a minute.
0: and so what happened then is i i went the next day i had a meeting at general mills and i played it for everybody at general mills and said hey just want to let you know how dedicated your sales rep is working on your request while in while in his deer stand so they got a a big big kick out of that that was a lot of fun yeah i heard i heard a lot about that one over the years you were you spent years and years and years dedicated to 3M uh, as well and you had a lot of there's a lot of camaraderie built up on on that team not just with yourself but with the customers and and you know that again in a crisis situation where there's a you know all hands on deck we got to solve this customer problem um the fact that the that you that all the team as well as the customer team all knows each other trusts each others work together it um, yep. really goes a long way, um, and I know you have some some stories. I'm sure about working with that team and that group of people. Well, I have
1: to I have to say we did have a lot of fun golfing with Trim customers and other customers. But um, one one thing I like to do, and I needed two people to pull this trick off, and Kevin Dumais easily stepped forward to be my my cohort in crime on this, and we tried to see how many customers. We could get hitting, exploding golf balls, <laughs> unbeknownst to them. And I probably over a five-year period of time or six-year period of time got probably thirty or I would say probably forty customers hitting an exploding golf ball. And I had I we, the best part was we'd actually take pictures of it as as we did it, so we could actually get them hitting the golf ball and seeing the the powder come out of it and everything. Um, so I have several pictures of of those customers doing it. But um, it was definitely fun, uh, except for one day I got one customer two times in one, or I should say I. Kevin and I got one customer two times in one day. Uh, he did not take lightly to that and got mad, took oh. his golf bags out of the g- golf cart, walked back to the clubhouse and left. And it was about a year later before he actually started talking to me anyway. So wow. He did not take it funny anymore, and he was a very important person, but uh, we, earned his, we earned his trust back after that. But it was an interesting <laughs> situation we got ourselves
0: into. Yeah that is a little interesting. <laughs> so I remember a time on the golf speaking of golf courses um and you mentioned Kevin DeMay so I don't, I'm sure you remember this uh you, we would have uh very friendly but very competitive little rivalry between you and Kevin DeMay and me and John Aiken and we played right. many many golf rounds uh, against each other with all kinds of different rules that uh, were more or less related to the actual rules of golf. But uh, I do remember one time when you guys got off to a big lead at the beginning, I believe this was up at the preserve uh, up north. It was. It and was. and um, you guys got up to a big league, we caught you. And then all of a sudden, we had a big league going to the last hole. And I was sure I was so sure that we had it wrapped up that I happen to have my camera out to commemorate our victory with the picture. And lo and behold, you have a, well, I don't even think you were on the green. Maybe you were on the very edge of the green or crazy long circus putt around and up and down. Um, you know, I don't know what it was, 75 feet or something like that on the last hole up there. And I'll be damned if you don't sink that thing to beat us by a stroke. And you and Kevin, well, I'll let you tell it. Do you remember what you did to celebrate? I, I do.
1: I, I remember uh, that we did the belly bump, and, and <laughs> there was a movie out that there was a movie out that year, and it, it was something about white men can't jump. And um, so Kevin and I, we we looked at each other, we ran at each other, and we we jumped up in the air. Unfortunately, I got about a foot and a half off the ground, and Kevin got six inches, and I thought I was going to knock him right over backwards and the look on his face was unbelievable so yes i do remember that it's and i have the picture still on my desk
0: yeah the the picture from uh, picture shows kevin in you know like pure terror because yep. you're above him and you you must outweigh him by uh, you know 50% at least <laughs> It was a tad bit larger than him at that time i still uh, am and so uh i i you know i was sore about that for a while because we had you but I did get a real good picture, and I was glad to give it to you. And if I can find that picture, I'm going to post that somewhere, maybe on the uh, the Facebook page for the the HP St. Paul group. I'll see if I can find that and post it because that was a classic. So,
1: well, if you if you can't find the picture, I have it right here on my desk, looking at me right now. Okay, that's one of my favorite pictures of all time.
0: And then uh, you also, uh, I know, were. Uh, had some interactions you were, I think you were with a customer, but also with us on a celebrity golf thing one time. Well, we were having a customer appreciation event.
1: Probably this was like 19. Oh, I'm going to guess somewhere around probably 1990. Uh, It was a customer appreciation event that we had every summer. And this year we were having it at the Minnetonka country club and we all, each team uh, would have a celebrity and the celebrity on my team was um, Chris Dolman. So I had myself, Chris Dolman, Jim Stutzman and uh, Marsh Bruff from both of those guys from 3M uh, on our team. And we were waiting at a tee box to tee off and there was a couple other foursomes ahead of us. There was a slowdown right there. So um, we had a few minutes to, to start talking and get to know Chris a little bit better. And Chris was going through his contract negotiations with the Vikings at the time. And um, one of my customers, Marsh, looked over at Chris and said, well, Chris, he says, I'm just curious. He says, How is your contract negotiations going with the Vikings? And which I thought was a fair question. And lo and behold, Chris didn't think so. Chris looked at Marsh and he looked at him and he says, Well, he says, you know what? That's on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. Now, there was a lot of silence afterwards. And I I I was gonna laugh as loud like as I could laugh, but I could tell that Chris, I couldn't tell if Chris was serious or not. So we just counted on that he was serious. And we just sat there and didn't say anything else until after we teed off. <laughs> so that's how that saying got going that I've used a lot over the years. That's on need no basis and you don't need to know. That's
0: where the that story came from. You know, I'm going to change gears to modern times now. Sure. Uh, because uh, I know that uh, Red Wing, in particular, one part of Red Wing is still very important to you. I'm looking, we're in a Zoom call right now. And I, you know, even though our listeners can't see it, I can see behind you is a portion of your. Collection of Red Wing pottery, and a lot of people might not know that you are actually an expert, and I mean expert on Red Wing pottery. And we had an amazing coincidence one week ago. I happened to be in Red Wing with my wife and my sister and her husband, and we decided to go into the Red Wing Pottery Museum. And who do we run into but you? And uh, you gave us a, a tour. I had no idea you were there. So how did you get? Tell us a little bit about your collection and. How you got kind of started in in all this uh, Red Wing pottery expertise?
1: It, it, it wasn't hard to get involved because Red Wing pottery was a big part of the, the the whole landscape of Red Wing itself. I mean, they had three different potteries making stoneware and art pottery over the, over the years. So it basically started out where my dad uh, had two cousins, one on each side, and they both were auctioneers. So at a very young age, I was going to multiple auctions in a weekend. So I probably went to 20 to 25 auctions a year. uh, And my parents and my aunts and uncles and my grandmother bought a lot of Red Wing pottery over the years. So uh, I've inherited a lot from them. And I've been selling off some things that was theirs over the years. And I've been buying things that I like. Uh, So I got um, involved with it at a very early age. And then I kind of got away from Red Wing after college and working for HP for so many years. But uh, the first thing I did when I retired was I started volunteering down at the Red Wing Pottery Museum. I've been volunteering down there now for 11 years. Uh, Please come on down. Uh, We have now about nine to 10,000 pieces of stoneware and art pottery down there uh, that uh, we've got into our museum. It's a a very, very good museum. Uh, There's no charge and it's pretty much run on a a volunteer basis except for just a couple of people keeping the lights on there. Uh, So I've been there now for, like I say, 11 years and I, I volunteer there pretty much every Wednesday. You know, um, being around it every day, I picked up a lot of what what to look for and what not to to look for. So, uh, when I'm out and about at antique shops, I can find some pretty good deals at a, at very good prices. And uh, so, I buy and sell it quite a bit. So, my selling days are still not over with.
0: Oh, that's great, Mark. How many how many pieces do you like at your peak or now? How many how many pieces do you think you have? Oh, at my peak, I probably had four hundred. Wow. But again, most of those were inherited from my parents and my my grandparents, and I I'm probably still at about three hundred. Okay, that's awesome, Mark. Well, if anybody uh, I know is a, a sort of a wheel wheeler dealer type, Mark, it's you. So I'm sure you do uh, come out on top on those transactions. So um, it seems like a perfect thing for you. Um, it's a fun hobby. Yeah. So you're in retirement now. Um, you know, what, el- what else are you up to personally? Tell me just a, a bit about like, you've got grandkids and stuff and, and, you know, what are yep. you up to these days? Well, right after I retired, actually just before I retired, I bought,
1: we bought a 42 foot motor coach. So we, we use that quite a bit for eight years. I think I put like 60,000 miles on it in eight years. So Lori and I, we did a lot of traveling. So we did a lot of that, but, um, We've taken over at Lori's parents' cabin here a few years ago, so uh, we've been spending a lot of time up at the cabin now. So it got to the point where, you know, you, you can't do both of them, so we got rid of the motorhome a couple years ago. <laughs> but we've been up to the cabin, and we've been enjoying our grandkids tremendously. My son, Matt, has uh, three three kids, uh, two boys and a girl, and my daughter, Kristen, has uh, one son. So we spend a lot of time with them up at the cabin in summer times, and it's fun watching them learn how to water ski and, and do things like
0: that. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Um, I really appreciate you joining me here today, and uh, I'm sure that everybody appreciated hearing about all those stories. Uh, one thing that you you have to look forward to now is that now that you've actually done this, you won't have me bugging you every week or two weeks saying, "When are you gonna? When are you going to agree to be a guest, Mark?" So <laughs> I I do appreciate it, and uh, thanks very much. And I look forward to when we can get together pretty soon. Well, thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks for listening. Larpenter Life is produced solely by me, Dave Carey. It's not affiliated or sponsored by HP in any way. Hey, Mark just did it, and you can too. It's really not difficult to be a guest, and I'd love to have you. If you're up for it, please send me an email at LarpenterLife at gmail.com. Until next time, take care, everybody.